0: This is Crossroads, the Get Religion
1: podcast. The case is Ramirez v. Collier. It was an 8-to-1 decision with only Clarence Thomas dissenting. It had to do with prayer in an execution chamber, holding hands in that execution chamber, and religious freedom. MSNBC had a commentary titled, How a Correct Ruling from the Supreme Court Might be used to take America backwards. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back.
0: Glad to be here.
1: You actually wrote about this Supreme Court decision on clergy praying at an execution in your syndicated column this week. Why?
0: Well, it wasn't just any syndicated column for me. This was a very symbolic column for me, and one that I thought about for quite some time, and chose this subject quite deliberately. This week marks the end of one-third of a century of me writing this column. And if you put it that way, it sounds like a long time, and it really is a long time. And I wondered at one point if I would ever make it to this point in terms of having things to write about. This column really calls back to the fact that I did a master's degree at Baylor University in the Department of Church State Studies. And anyone who has listened to you and I talk about anything for the last near decade or something like that, has to have noticed my obsession with the First Amendment and with religious liberty cases in particular. And this one was fascinating to me because for the most part, the MSNBC article you cited is an interesting and insightful exception. This was a piece of law, this was a case that called up The fact that until very recently, religious liberty was something that liberals cheered for, and it was something that in most cases we had a unique coalition of both conservatives, culturally and religiously speaking, and liberals who agreed with each other on a lot of cases, almost all cases, involving religious freedom and freedom of religious practice. The thing you've, you've heard me mention before was the fact that in 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RFRA, a crucial piece of law, RFRA passed in the U.S. Senate on a vote of 97 to 3 during the Clinton administration. Can you imagine the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passing in Congress right now in the Senate on a 97 to 3 vote? In the current atmosphere? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so what I was trying to get at in this column was, why is that? The press coverage of this case was uniformly good in the sense that it was something that, once again, didn't call up any of the ghosts that would normally come up in a religious liberty case. This was not a situation where the mainstream press felt the need to put religious liberty inside quotation marks. Those scare quote marks we talk about so much. Some sort of cynical uncertainty about whether religious liberty is real. And that was because this didn't have anything to do with a culture wars topic. The death penalty really wasn't, for example, not being debated here. The issue was something really interesting. It was... Could a state prevent a pastor, a priest, a clergy person, from doing something that they have done for centuries, which is comforting someone before an execution? (laughs) It's not every day that I get to write a column that opens with the English Civil Wars and the execution of King Charles I in 1649 and have it actually be a historical reference that was cited in some of the arguments preceding this Supreme Court case. So we can get into a discussion of this, but the key to me was why was this story so symbolic for me after marking one-third of a century as a columnist? And let me give you a quick little litany of the reasons. For one thing, this was a classic example Of everyone affirming private religion versus public religion. And in this case, this was prayer. This was, you said, hand-holding or touch. The other way to think of it is put it in the Catholic situation or in another setting of laying on of hands, or even anointing of someone for the last rites. And the minute you put these—Baptists wouldn't obviously be doing that, but the minute you put it in those terms, you can immediately see the doctrinal and the sacramental importance of what's at stake here. At the same time, you could make a case that many people hailed this decision because it only was private religion. It wasn't something that affected public reality, like education, or employment, or debates about the meaning of marriage. It also, for me, was a classic case, because we had this old coalition of left and right come back. Clearly, this was good religious liberty. And yet the MSNBC article quickly points out, well, yeah, but what if that helps people defend bad religious liberty? I I also thought it was interesting, although nobody caught it. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, is, as you and I have discussed many times, it's like the great law and the great piece of American legislation and court logic that the press keeps forgetting about. It's like it doesn't exist. Yet in this case, we had a very clear RIFRA theme, in that what Texas tried to do—Texas saw this as another way to delay or inhibit or somehow mess up the death penalty. Now, listeners need to know that— I am opposed to death penalty, very much so for the same reason that I I am not in favor of the state giving the right to take human life anywhere between conception and natural death. So I would consider it a part of my pro-life beliefs, and I know many people wouldn't agree with that. But what Texas said here was rather than do anything that slow down or mess up our execution, we're going to ban all clergy from being put in the death chamber within audible range of a of a person before they die or as they die or let alone with the ability to lay hands on them in a religious ritual sense rifra normally says that that's one of your options you either have to allow all religious expression or frankly even all non-profit expressions of activities or you have to ban them all. In a public school, for example, if you're going to ban a Bible study group after school, and they have a faculty sponsor, and they're willing to live with the the limitations of other student groups, to ban that Bible study, you have to ban all student activities. You have to show that there's no special discrimination against religion. Well, Texas tried to do that in this case, and the court said, no, in this case, this is a form of religious expression that is so important that we just got to protect it, period. So that's a whole litany of reasons. But you can see why I thought, just knowing my own beliefs and my own work as a reporter for so many years, why this was such an important story to me.
1: So give us the facts of this Supreme Court case of Ramirez v. Collier. Well, Texas tried to
0: say, like as, as I just implied, that they had due cause to take away this right for clergy because they felt it was these activities might in some way mess up. That's a, not a very good legal term. I'm sure there's a better one. But would get in the way of the state doing its duty in terms of an execution. I also think it's interesting that Justice Thomas— was the only person who voted against this. And Justice Thomas had a fascinating reason. Justin Thomas just said, I don't think this man is sincere. I don't think his religious beliefs are sincere. No matter what he's testified, no matter how many times he's met with his pastor or whatever, I just think he's trying to slow down his execution. Whereas Ramirez was found guilty of murder in a convenience store crime. Ramirez said he wasn't trying to to avoid execution. He was sincerely wanted his pastor with him. So this idea of sincere religion is also another. How does the state test for sincerity of religion? That can occur in all kinds of settings, everything from arguments about Hobby Lobby objecting to certain policies to wedding photographers and cake bakers and florists and, and others. And rifra once again, has a test for how you test for religious sincerity, and one of them is, has this person's faith been making this argument and defending this right for a long period of time, or is this just something an, an individual has kind of dreamed up, like sacramental use of marijuana as opposed to Native Americans having a sacramental use of peyote? How much history is there behind this practice. And that was what another thing that really intrigued me about the story in this case is the arguments for this one like I said they went all the way back to medieval times and one of the counsels for the Beckett group a conservative group that defends religious liberty during a meeting with an online meeting with reporters he said in this case you know Texas was trying to argue with George Washington you know, who commanded that clergy had every right to be with people but for their execution. You were trying to argue against the the people who controlled the Nuremberg Trials, you know, which allowed clergy full access to people at the moments of their execution. Fascinating case and all kinds of themes, but once again, is this good religious liberty? And if it's good religious liberty, could courts and lawyers and other kinds of people argue that Good religious liberty then should be used to protect bad religious liberty. Let's let the listeners hear just a little bit of the language of the the MSNBC piece on this. This is an opinion piece, not a news piece, but the commentator said, following this decision, discrimination laws may apply to everyone except those who claim their religious beliefs, prevent them from providing goods or services To members of the LGBTQ community, for example. And if the pandemic gets worse again and the state decides to prevent groups of 15 people or more from gathering indoors, a government decision could apply to those except those who claim the decision tramples on their right to worship. They're saying the state could make that distinction, but after this decision, it's kind of unlikely. So here's another piece of fascinating language, one really blunt piece of language from this commentary. One way to square these rulings is to conclude that the court is concerned about the rights of some religious objectors, but not all religious objectors. Another is that the court was simply correcting an incorrect decision. In any case, most signs point to this being a court—this being a court, a bad court—that will continue to be protective of the rights of religious objectors, even when those objectors are some of the most heinous actors— in our society. That's one of the bluntest statement of the good religion, bad religion, good religious liberty versus bad religious liberty theses I've heard ever.
1: So that seems to kind of fall in line with the headline over that story about how a correct ruling from the Supreme Court might make you take America backwards. I mean, how do you cheer and boo at the same time?
0: Yet it's fascinating how often do you get to see MSNBC collide with a strong celebratory statement about this case from the American Civil Liberties Union. I mean, you're used to seeing MSNBC worry about some of the people involved in the defense of this case. And and I noted there was a coalition that filed a brief on this that in addition to Beckett and people like the Alliance for the Defense of Freedom – You had the Christian Legal Society. That's Pat Robertson's old organization. The National Association of Evangelicals, the Anglican Church of North America, the Rutherford Institute, the Southern Baptist Conventions, Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and others. Yet I would note that you also had the Progressive Baptist Joint Committee strongly affirmed this decision. Another group that used to be a part of those left-right coalitions back in the Clinton days. And like I said, the ACLU, in this case, I mean, in even with a piece of religious language, their religious freedom program expert said Texas has given no good reason for denying Mr. Ramirez's reasonable request for basic religious accommodations during the execution. This welcome decision will help him find spiritual comfort in his final moments. Well, the MSNBC article is onto something, in the sense that if the court is going to cite centuries. Of religious tradition as a good reason to uphold a religious practice. Well, what makes some religious doctrines and traditions that have been a part of life in numerous faiths around the world, like a definition of marriage, or the ability to defend a definition of marriage, or a school's right to defend specific doctrines, in terms of the faculty that it hires and fires, the students it admits or don't admits, or even the students it disciplines over things that violate those doctrines after the students have signed a doctrinal or lifestyle covenant. What makes those traditions good or bad how do you know the difference between a good religious tradition and a bad religious tradition? And that's what the MSNBC commentary is talking about. And yet we used to have standards for how we made those decisions. And Rifra was the ultimate celebration of the logic of how you tested between sincere religious practice and those that are kind of just made up of whole cloth on the spur of the moment. But, On and on we go with this, but you can see why I thought this was such an important decision and why I kind of wanted to mark it with what, for me, is one of the most two or three symbolic columns I've ever written.
1: I wanted to stay with that phrase, sincerely held beliefs, because no one, even the court itself, does not seem to know what to do with that. I mean, the question that you raised before, (laughs) who gets to decide? And then I read some other commentary I think that you had linked to me from someone who is saying look this sincerely held beliefs is a standard applied mostly to white protestants and yeah. not to non-white non-traditional religions
0: <laughs> well that's weird because one of the most important supreme court cases of all time related to rifra i just kind of referred to it a second ago was one of the defining cases was the case of native americans being able to say that they had a sacramental right to use peyote, a banned drug, an illegal drug, in rituals that they noted they had been doing for for centuries. And the court said that that's a valid argument, that obviously they were not saying we have a right to the use of peyote while driving down interstate highways, or we have a right to use of peyote while watching the Super Bowl, or at a uh, Grateful Dead alumni concert of some kind. They were saying in a very specific sacramental setting defined by centuries of tradition, they had a sincere belief that they were supposed to continue in the actions of their forefathers and use peyote to induce a certain spiritual condition. Well, that's not exactly white Protestantism, right? Does that sound like white Protestantism to you? Not really. No, and and we've had religious liberty cases in that link to the civil rights movement and and a lot of other things. Now I think what's fascinating, and our listeners might disagree with me, I think it would be very interesting. You know, if you're talking in all those fights that we had over the definition of marriage, you could have made a strong religious liberty case from the left that the Episcopal Church, or the Evangelical Lutheran Church, should have every right to marry gays and lesbians because it's their religious beliefs and doctrines that have evolved and changed, and the proper theological steps were taken to change those doctrines. The issue is, does the state recognize those marriages, and why should the state not recognize the marriages of liberal groups as opposed to the marriages of conservative groups, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, Southern Baptists, the Missouris and the Lutherans. I mean, so you can hear how the sincerely held beliefs and practice, and then the doctrinal standard, how that still doesn't settle everything, does it? But the whole point of RIFRA was that we're not guaranteeing you the right to continue something based on a religious liberty claim. We're guaranteeing you that you get to go before a court and make a case defending your religious liberty according to the standards previously recognized by the court and recognized in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Nobody has an unlimited right to religious liberty, but boy, the First Amendment is about as strong a defense of it as the world has ever seen. And once again, that's why this issue matters so much to me.
1: Is there a connection in your mind to the recent kerfuffle over the Florida law that was widely reported to be the don't say gay bill?
0: Oh, yeah, certainly here, because I bet you the minute you push behind the logic of people on both sides of that fight, a lot of the people who are pleading for parental rights, the ability to help. Determine how their children are educated on issues related to marriage and sexuality and gender and gender identity and polyform marriage and all kinds of things, transition issues with gender dysphoria, I guarantee you a high percentage of the people who are making that case and backing the Florida law are saying, we have a religious right to do this. Our faith grants us certain rights in the raising of our children. That it's our faith's teachings on sexuality that we want the ability to defend with our children, especially between kindergarten and third or fourth grade. I guarantee you that's part of it. Meanwhile, on the other side, on the left, once again, and I wrote about this at Get Religion, I think you could make a case that a lot of liberal churches would now say that they have a right in public schools with their children to have their beliefs affirmed by the school. And if their church now recognizes gender transition as an important thing, I mean, we have celebrations of gender transition happening in Episcopal churches and perhaps ELCA churches and in other liberal settings, do they have a right... For public schools, to advocate their doctrines, or to prevent their children from having to hear references to traditional gender, Disney, you know, you had that Disney news the other day that a major official at Disney said they're no longer going to welcome people with ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. They're now going to call them what? I forget it. It's it's, it's not seekers. I know one of the words was dreamers.
1: Dreamers, yes.
0: Yeah. Can you see here how people are actually arguing about concepts that are essentially religious, yet they are at the same time also stunningly public? It's one of the reasons I'm so disturbed that we have so many reporters who don't realize that Rifra and a coalition that ranged with everybody from Pat Robertson to the Unitarians wrestled with these issues with RIFRA in the 1990s, And there for a while, we had a compromise, a tolerance. We had some standards for what courts were supposed to do. And now it's just culture wars, a phrase in which almost anything goes. So I think we had the court here defending something at the right of private prayers and a private ministry to an individual at the most vulnerable moment of his life, right before he's executed by the state. In marriage, as a a church-state expert from Baylor that I quote in my column, someone I've quoted many times through the years, Francis Beckwith, who's a, a philosopher with an interesting history. He was at one point like the president of the Evangelical Society for Philosophy and Studies of Philosophy, and he held that position until he converted back to the faith of his childhood, which was Roman Catholicism. So this is a guy with a very wide intellectual background. In my column I quoted him making a case that marriage has become a point where this private beliefs have colliding with the actions of the state. What does a secular marriage look like? Well, that's one of the things we're fighting about. Florida, to me, is clearly an example that we're headed for a continuing oh Donnybrook over what is possible in public education in the United States, an institution of tremendous importance An institution linked to tax laws and the mandatory paying of your taxes to support public education. Yet at the same time we have parents on the religious left and the secular left and the religious right and the traditional forms of religion we're continuing to see collisions about this. At the same time we see collisions affecting whether private schools even, doctrinally defined private schools Catholic schools can continue to defend their own doctrines and the practice of their faith in terms of who they hire, who they fire, who studies there, who is not allowed to continue studying there. I think education is, in fact, where the church state lines, they have been in many important cases in education in the past. I think we're just getting started seeing how the battles over public dollars, laws, and public education, how far these parental rights goes, parental rights on the left and parental rights on the right. So I think education is, in fact, the future of this story.
1: So how do you think this is going to eventually come out? The The MSNBC commentary was pretty gloomy from its perspective about yeah. the current makeup of the court. but. there's no doubt that as long as the court sits as it does, it is going to be testing, or legal minds are going to be testing, all kinds of religious liberty issues in front of them, trying to carve out some new ground.
0: Well, I mean, the ultimate issue, and this is something I think we talked about about a year ago, I know I wrote a column about it, David French, the religious liberty attorney who's so controversial on both the left and the right, David French wrote a book called Divided We Fall, and in it, He argued that if we don't get out of the current court some sort of defining defense of federalism and the belief that you don't have to have exactly the same laws in San Francisco, California, that you have in Waco, Texas. You don't have to have the exact same medical policies in New York City that you have in Nashville whatever, just picking some symbolic cities out of a hat. He basically said, if we don't get a strong Supreme Court case defending the essence of federalism, we are headed for some form of legal or economic civil war. And he lays out examples of that from both the left and the right in this very important book that I would urge our listeners to check out. Or at the very least, go to TMAT.net and search for David French and read the column that I wrote about it. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than calling up a civil war. But that civil war could look like things we're already seeing, which is like a state passing a law and other states or Apple or Disney or Hollywood saying, well, we're not going to do business with that state anymore. We've already heard that, right? We've already seen this. We've already seen the NCAA say, okay, you pass a law saying that DNA-defined females have a right to privacy in their locker rooms and their showers compared to trans women. If you pass a law that says that, we're not going to let the final four be held in your state. We're not going to let maybe—we'll see if this happens— brigham young university join the big 12 when push comes to shove espn may have some qualms about that and who owns espn disney and so forth and so on civil wars can take all kinds of shapes all the way down to people worrying about well a billionaire like elon musk being in a position now To have a hostile takeover of Twitter. And what are they fighting about? One of the things they're fighting about was the Babylon Bee's right to go on Twitter and defend religious traditions related to what gender is. Defend it with sarcasm and the usual one-liners that the, the Babylon Bee is known for. Satire is the word I was looking for. I mean so a civil war can take all kinds of forms, all kinds of people can get involved. At some point I could see Elon Musk deciding that those satellites up in the sky in Starlink that are helping the Ukraine now communicate with the rest of the world. What if at some point Elon Musk decides, well, you know, maybe Starlink should allow religious conservatives to communicate with the rest of the world to the same degree that they thought they had the right to communicate on Facebook or Twitter. You can see this can go in all kinds of directions, and looming in the background is good religion versus bad religion, good free speech versus bad free speech, and so many of these themes that have dominated my column and my my work for the last couple of decades.
1: With only about 30 seconds here, Terry, what beat should be covering this, religion or legal?
0: Yes. The answer to that question is yes. This is an example where we clearly need reporting teams with people with skills in religion beat coverage as well as in First Amendment studies. And note that the First Amendment is both religion and free speech and freedom of the press. So why not create a team with skills to cover that?
1: Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks.
0: Glad to be here.
1: I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the
0: First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.